Hello, BYWG Tribe. Here's a quick peek at our supplement, product, course, and book of the month for June 2020. At the end of the podcast, I will spend a few minutes going into further detail, so we encourage you to listen to the end. The supplement of the month for June is Turmeric Boost. This is our very own BCM95 highly absorbable form of turmeric. The 10% discount code in office or online is DFLAME10, case sensitive. Our book of the month is Sacred Cow, Why Well-Raised Meat is Good for You and Good for the Planet by Diana Rogers and Rob Wolf. The product, well, it's actually a course of the month is Lifebook. Lifebook is a one-of-a-kind lifestyle design system that guides you towards your personal vision of success in a 12 dimensions of your life. All the links, discount codes, and special offers for the product, supplement, and book will be listed in the show notes and iTunes, posted on social media, in our weekly newsletter, and at our website at www.beyondyourwildestgenes.com at the Listen Now tab. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome back to Beyond Your Wildest Genes podcast. My name is Dr. Noah DeCoyer, and I am your co-host. Today, our guest is Ryan Frithinger from Cosmic Animal. That's Cosmic with a K. One of my partners, Dr. Mike, and I were commenting a while back how much we loved your podcast interview, Ryan, you did with uh, Rob Wolf. Uh, your area of specialty is of great interest, uh, so I just knew I had you on. I'm glad you responded to my request, uh, and thank you for being available for our audience, Ryan. Thank you so much. No, it's good to be here. Yeah, so let me, let me do your bio and then just kind of like set the stage and we'll get started. Ryan is an interdisciplinary specialist operating at the intersections of medicine and culture. His major research project is the interaction between genetics, biotechnology, medicine, culture, and the humanities, with an emphasis on biohacking. Ryan designs customized health programs that address genetic weaknesses, nutritional deficiencies, emotional traumas, and performance issues. By transforming advanced multidisciplinary research into potent health-restoring programs, he provides individuals with an operating manual for their unique body. His client base includes professional athletes, type A, high performers, autistic children, and individuals with autoimmune diseases, neurologic disorders, and other chronic illnesses. His broader work encourages a better understanding of articulation of scientific knowledge and an informed critique of the ethical and cultural issues surrounding medical interventions and the practice of medicine. Holy mackerel, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one to read. But uh, Ryan, you know, this, this topic of interpreting genes, genomic testing, and customized health programs is really being pushed to the forefront. You know, I'm hoping today we can kind of, these are gigantic topics in themselves, but I'd like to talk a little bit about Genomics 101, you know, kind of its relationship with epigenetics, primarily because we're a life-driven a lifestyle-driven podcast, and who you are, your services, and and uh, I think and hope we can accomplish this in our short time together. Oh, sounds good. So kind of dive in and, and start the uh, Genomics 101. Genomics 101 is essentially the study of the entire genome, um, most specifically the interactions that all these single genes have with one another in various regions of the body. And I think that genomics is a more fruitful approach to dealing with genes and single genetic mutations, which tends to be the focus of most of these uh, genetic practitioners that exist in the United States, because genes themselves are, are, especially if they're mutated, are pleiotrophic, which means they exhibit effects in regions that are close to them, but they also 
exhibit effects in multiple other areas that are not exactly related to where they're singly located within the body. And all genes have three to four functions um, at a, a given time within the body. And there's 20,000 or so genes that we know of. And then there's 20,000 or so genes that can, um, that encode for RNA. Um, and the, the bigger mystery is that this 40,000 uh, gene grouping that we're talking about, which makes up the, the genome, is really only 2 to 3% of our entire DNA. The rest of it's junk DNA, um, which is kind of a, a misinformed kind of moniker, but really it, it tells us that the epigenome and the epigenetic maneuvers and all the fine-tuning and specializations that exist within the genome are actually coming from that junk DNA. And I think that this is sort of going to be where the research goes. And the reason I, as a practitioner, take a genomic as as opposed to a genetic approach to genes is I think it makes uh, no sense to look at single um, mutations. So when you hear in our world right now, everybody's focused on MTHFR mutations and they're focused on COMT and some of these other ones that are fairly legible. They're easy to understand, at least biochemically, and you can actually drop a nutrient into a patient's cellular chemistry and kind of see outcomes changed and there's lots of associations with these particular uh, SNPs because they drive pathogenic processes that are pretty global um, and cross all the spectrums of all the kind of chronic disease terrain. But my experience is that genetics are and genomes are extremely dynamic. They are chaotic systems that when pushed in a particular direction will start to remodel themselves and respond differently. And so while methylation is a nutri it's a nutritional pathway, and that's the beauty of it because it allows us to essentially overcome genetic problems, it's also a pathway that can be overdetermined and overtreated and can cause responses elsewhere that you'd be better off taking lifestyle um, interventions into account over supplemental interventions. And you also have to be careful with understanding the biochemistry itself and understanding that these these methylation cycles, um, by which there's four of them, the methionine, folate, BH4, and urea, and we'll talk about sort of what those do here in a minute, but those, those are essentially these alchemical systems that take a small group of nutrients into the body, and they transform them multiple times, and they recycle elements of those nutrients for use and continual use within the body. And the idea is that you're moving nutrients to where they're needed, uh, on a continual basis for the maintenance and restoration of the body and for lots of signaling uh, communication uh, work in the body, but you're also conserving lots of those nutrients because our genome was, of course, something that evolved in a, an environment of scarcity where we couldn't make interventions with the exact amount of things every day. So there's a lot of, of uh, economy involved in the way that our genes work. Um, but genomics, again, is, approach, is an approach that looks at the entirety of the genome, looks at the expression of the genome, folds in things like metabolomics, which is where you're looking at metabolites in the body and how those are used in all these different areas of the body, not just singly in the regions that are being coded for by, for, for instance, like in MTHFR. Um, and it takes a more global approach. It also is an approach that I take because... I think that we're starting to move into some pretty dangerous terrains where we're thinking about editing single nucleotide polymorphisms, and we think that we can run our genetics through algorithms that can spit out programs that tell us 
how much 5-MTHF to take in a day and how much magnesium and zinc and sort of the major cofactors of methylation. I think that reading the genome that way leads to maybe some short-term upregulated effects, but long-term can deliver some fairly dangerous side effects and, and slowed healing for people, especially with chronic illnesses. So my interest is really what are the principles that are governing this vast symphonic arrangement of the genes? What are the major inputs of those genes? For instance, we know that um, 15 to 20 percent of the genome is essentially controlled by light-dark cycles, photoperiods. And this is where things like blue light exposure and lack of sunlight and all these effects that we're seeing on light have on our genome. But that's an interesting thing if we understand the principles, for instance, of how many of the neurotransmitters and antioxidant systems of the body are being governed by our relationship to natural cycles and natural systems. I think we have a much better ability to kind of modulate that whole genome in the right direction without having to know specifically about how all these genes are interacting. And from what I've, um, one of the quotes that I like to give is that the more we study the genome, the more the individual gene itself recedes. So the more that I see um, single genetic studies on single polymorphisms or groups of polymorphisms, the more I realize that we're kind of a long ways from understanding how those things are working as single actors, but we are pretty versed in understanding how the genome interacts as a complex system. And if you look at the design of our bodies, which I think is important, it's running off of very few nutrients, very few chemicals. It's quite amazing to look at the amount of things that can be created out of a single set of kind of uh, inputs. And so I think it's also important to look at while we have 20,000 protein coding genes, we can make 100,000 different types of proteins. And I think that that's, that's interesting. And most of the reasons why, for instance, genomically we break down is quite simply because the water that we drink is probably in the wrong form and structure. It's, it's essentially adulterated by treatment chemicals. Our connection to sunlight is, is pretty, pretty compromised in most of the modern world. Our ability to sort of deal with with nutrients is also compromised because of our, our lack of, of respect for photo periods. And then we also see things like environmental toxins in mass that cause signaling errors. But really, if you look at it, most of our health issues that I see that break down the genome are the result of nutrient deficiency, specifically certain types of minerals, vitamins, and fatty acids, and, and the epigenetic lifestyle factors that essentially trap our methylation cycle into survival mode as, a, as opposed to allowing it to get into the restorative side. And that's kind of a big point that I want to make right now because your, your interest is, is epigenetics and the epigenetic uh, abilities of the body to overcome disease and to heal itself. Um, methylation really is a large portion of our epigenetic control and our body's epigenetic capacity for overcoming things. For listeners that don't know what epigenetics are, they're essentially changes in the expression of a particular DNA uh, sequence without actually altering the sequence itself. So you could have a sequence that's mutated and not working terribly well, but you can do things epigenetically around that by making certain types of interventions that will allow it to behave more um, healthily and more effectually. But epigenetics really... Methylations are our are, are way into that, but the other important factor is that methylation, we talk about it, I, I like to describe it as the body's mechanic 
Um, it's responsible for maintaining the nervous system, all the cells in the body for helping us to detoxify, helping us to remove things like viruses and bacteria from the system by disassembling them. It really keeps us afloat on a chemical level. It's also largely responsible for all the phenotypical expressions, what our personality looks like, what do we look like as people, um, how do we function in the container that's our body. So it's an incredibly important region. But epigenetically speaking, its first priority is to keep us alive. So in our modern world, because of the high levels of stress, um, we happen to make lots of adrenaline and epinephrine. We happen to have lots of uh, over-exaggerated histamine responses. We have lots of food allergy responses. And our methylation cycle itself is really wired as first priorities to activate adrenaline and to inactivate it, to inactivate activate histamines to inactivate neurotransmitters. The last order priorities are what we most associate with methylation, which is the creation of DNA, RNA, and protein, and to, to contribute to protein synthesis. And then finally, to help activate creatine, which is an absolutely crucial nutrient and something that I look for in labs, uh, r rising creatine levels in production as a way to measure whether methylation is becoming more functional. But at the end of the day, you know, lots of the ways that we deal with our genome is monitoring our stress levels, managing our emotional content and our emotional lives, managing the food that comes into our body. And at the very end, it's, it's trying to replace some of the molecules that our system isn't making, which is where MTHFR and COMT mutations factor in and where those interventions are designed to essentially bypass the weaknesses in these particular enzymatic pathways. Uh, that being said, genomics as well, um, to return to this concept, is global in its focus and is looking at the macro picture of the body. I also particularly lean into it because when you ask questions about the genome, it allows you to work with people on the emotional side of things, on the spiritual side of their lives, and to evaluate trauma, for instance, not only within that person's life, but within the uh, intergenerations or the intergenerational traumas that impact the genomic expression of that person, which is where I find in my client base, many of the major breakdown uh, forces of methylation come from trauma. They come from sometimes seemingly uh, innocuous events in childhood where a person feels unsafe, that feeling of, of, of you know, fear and lack of safety translates into nervous system tone changes. And then you see someone who down the line will develop these kind of methylation disorders. But the methylation disorder itself didn't come from that. And I'm very con um, one of the things that I like to say about the genome is it's, it's very amenable to a narrative. Our genome allows us not only as a species, as a typology, to tell stories about ourselves, about our origins, but it allows us uh, clinically as clinicians to lean into stories of the self and to use the genome as an organizational principle for a life story and to be able to look for subtext changes and tropes and themes within that. And my doctoral training was actually in literature um, initially, and I've become a functional practitioner as a side project for uh, the majority of my adult life I've studied medicine, but I was trained as a literary scholar and literary theorist. So part of the reason why I'm, I've been successful in my practice with chronic illnesses, with people that have mystery illnesses, is essentially being able to help them reconstruct a timeline of their life, which is a homeopathic 
tradition of leaning into timelines and looking at all the effects and areas where the body may have gone offline and areas where the person's um, nervous system may have sort of taken a detour. But this narrative approach, which is what I use, allows me to construct the story around the genome that allows me to identify areas where the genome has been epigenetically triggered in a negative way. And it also will allow me to look at qualitatively some of these polymorphisms that would show up, for instance, in a 23andMe and assess whether or not they're really affecting that person's life beyond just looking for biomarker evidence of that. And so oftentimes, um, and one of the genes that is very controversial is the CBS mutation. There's very few practitioners in the nutrigenomics world that think that it's a problem outside of, for instance, Amy Yasko. Um, but I actually see it as a major problem in my practice insofar as it predisposes people to wire themselves for fight or flight relationships with their environment and with their family and with their jobs. And it causes the breakdown of methylation almost indirectly by its ability to sort of trap the nervous system into a particular relationship with, with that person's body and their environment. But it also depletes lots of the outcomes uh, that methylation is attempting to do, especially in the methionine cycle, um, because it's one of the only genes that's an upregulation. And it essentially, if it's working properly, it's going to take a bit of that homocysteine and break it down and eventually help your body to make glutathione, which we all know is a very important detoxification molecule. But when it doesn't work properly, it shunts um, the body towards the production of lots of sort of sulfation byproducts and helps to essentially cause ex excess ammonia production and things like that. One of the things that's interesting, if you were to quantitatively assess the CBS mutation, you wouldn't see it in the literature as being a problem. Most of the literature looks at CBS enzymes that are slower and don't function as well that lead to methionine depletion, which essentially lead to low SAMI and a lot of neurodegeneration in animal models. Um, and, and it seems like there's no, no issue, and there's practitioners that actually are looking for evidence of CBS upregulation as being a problem. But I'll tell you, in my client base, in the absence of scientific studies, folks that are restricted on their sulfur groups and the thiol groups and the, and the histamine-containing foods, when they do this, the rest of methylation actually starts to work better because this is a disturbance that doesn't allow nutrients to move throughout the cycle and it doesn't allow the chemistry itself to work on an even basis. And so a lot of the treatment of MTHFRs and MTRs and a lot of these folate cycle-centric uh, issues usually become more effective in people with chronic illness with CBS mutations once you've dealt with the CBS issue. And that really is controlled through diet and through taking some supplements that can degrade ammonia. But when I look at evidence for the CBS, it's not always there nutrigenomically. It's there in the story of the person. And it's there in just asking simple questions about, you know, certain types of flare-ups flare that you see around the skin or the surfaces of the body. Um, it's a delayed reaction with most of the thiol groups foods where if you eat something, say, on a Monday, you may not start to see the real downstream effects till Thursday or Friday. So it makes it hard to pinpoint on food allergy assessments and things of that nature. But you can really get an assessment of how some of these genes, especially the ones around the brain and the, the personality disorders and the, and the sort of control of the neurotransmission of, of molecules in the body, you see a lot of these things 
more on the personality side of the client and more in the family tree of the client that manifests as mood disorders and things of that nature. And they may not always show up as clean clinical evidence in a nutrigenomic report, for instance, or a neurotransmitter assessment. So I'm basically always taking and evaluating what I call texts, the multiple texts of the body. And you mentioned earlier about medical hermeneutics. I'm going to jump into that really quickly. Medical hermeneutics is essentially the art of interpreting medical texts. Hermeneutics is an interpretive strategy that was employed in continental philosophy, uh, starting with Hegel, moving into Heideggerian philosophy, and then more into phenomenology um, in the kind of early 20th century and late 20th century. And we originally employed hermeneutical strategies to read biblical texts and to look for authorship and to really try to ascertain uh, the various themes that are coming out of those texts and, and sort of the genealogies of those kinds of texts. It's, it's often applied in legal settings as well when we're talking about doing legal analysis and we're analyzing um, laws and codices and things of that nature, looking for scaffolding to make legal arguments. But it, it really, it, its core is interpretation. And the reason why I have decided to employ it and kind of work to create a methodology, which hermeneutics isn't strictly a methodology, it's an interpretive sort of phenomenological approach, but I'm sort of trying to organize it more as a method because in medicine we are evaluating text. And when I say text, what are examples of text? Well, the person's narrative about their life that they come to the clinic presenting with, the family tree that they present with as a type of text, that genetic document that we or genetic information that we retrieve through the 23andMe analysis as, an, as a textual form. The um, types of lab data that we get are text, and there's different types of text that I look at, and I call them narrative. Um, there's the machine sort of language text of, of, our, of our technologies, MRIs, X-rays, uh, lab equipment, things of that nature. And then there's the more... Um, fluid texts, which are the stories that the person tells, the family narratives that they tell, and things of that nature, which for me often have the most richness and they allow me to make meaningful clinical contributions or interventions because that's where I find a lot of the hidden elements that are driving pathology is in those kind of texts. But the other reason why I like to consider medicine as a textual practice is as a practitioner, when I work with clients, there's something called a hermeneutical circle, and that's when an interpreter reads a particular type of text. That interpreter is changed by reading that text themselves, and it's not a top-down sort of approach. So when I work with clients, not only does my clinical um, chops and my clinical information and abilities get enhanced by working with self-aware clients, but I'm also helping them to rewrite their own text and to make edits. And that's what we're searching for is to restore the living text, which is the totality of the person, through working with their genetics, through working on the traumas that they're carrying, through dealing with the removal of pathogens and detoxification uh, efforts, and through helping them also. A lot of my practices is sitting with people and trying to figure out what it is they want to do with their life, what kind of hero's journey do they want to participate in so that they can have the compliance to actually do the work, which can be very difficult at times to overcome significant genetic issues um, aligned with cer certain types of environmental triggers. So we're really trying to look at all the forms that comprise the person. What are these things telling us? So when I look at genetic reports, I'm spending 
eight to 10 hours evaluating labs, evaluating what the client has told me about themselves and the qualitative assessments that I give. And then at that point, I want to look at genetics because data is fairly mute until we interpret it. And we're getting really good at generating lots of new data. 23andMe has a new version out, version 5, which some people believe is weakened what it's it's giving you. But I think they've cleaned up some areas of it. And it's going to actually yield more meaningful genetic data. But that data is subject to massive amounts of interpretation on the clinical side. And so this is why hermeneutics becomes valuable in that sense because – I can get that data, I can interpret it, and then I can start to try to make meaning out of it by comparing it and situating it into real information that's been governed and derived from the person. And so I really look at myself kind of as an investigator in that sense, someone trying to retell a narrative. So my job as a clinician when I do my work is to be a historian, to be a counselor, to be a medical professional, and to just listen creatively to what I'm hearing so that I can find some sort of organizing principle that's got a certain uh, group of plot points that I can then design some type of medical and lifestyle intervention around to help move that person from a state of ill health to, to healing. And, you know, and it's a very dynamic process and it's not set. And one of the things moving back to genomics and nutrigenomics, there's a lot of belief that if we just throw lots of money and Silicon Valley is getting involved in a lot of these algorithmic gene reading softwares and companies that we can essentially start to separate and, and organize people according to genetic archetypes. And then we can essentially develop these kind of broad scale treatments and, and essentially start to scale genetic or nutrigenomic work through these kind of algorithmic approaches there are certainly people that would agree with me, but I would argue that that's never going to work. And in my case, even though I've seen 95% similar genetic profiles, I've seen none of those yield the same types of effects. And that gets back to epigenetics, which is to say that working at the genomic level with, with big data, instead of leading to easy scale, often leads to more um, N equals one kind of work and smaller scale in terms of working with clients as a practitioner and lends itself to more of this kind of narrative approach because you get finer information about the person, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything until it's situated elsewhere in a much larger context. And that's kind of, um, you know, I'm not going to go too much into that today, but there's this movement with the CRISPR gene editing and, uh, really developing kind of super specified genetic treatments through drugs and things like that. A lot of that work is still being governed by clinical studies where you're looking at single genetic variants who are completely divorced of their genomic context and all the biological cofactors and contributors, including environmental stressors, that you would need to assess the value of that. So that's why I'm always saying genetics was where we started. We decoded the genome finally in 2003. Now any of us can essentially send in a salivary sample and get our at least a snapshot of most or many of the reasons of our genome. But we're really still struggling how to situate it in that symphonic context of the genome itself and trying to understand, you know, what are the principles governing it? What are the interventions that make most sense? And where are the most common um ways or what are the most common ways that people are sort of epigenetically wired to experience genetic breakdown. And so those are some of the bigger issues that, that I'm studying, not only 
when I work with clients, but my research path. And then I also also really deep about the politics of genetics and you know, why do we want genetic data about ourselves? Not not just because it allows us to heal better, but because that information, in my opinion, allows us to become better citizens and allows us to have more agency in the management of our own personal biology. And really, as allopathic medicine continues to struggle with the rising rates of chronic illness and severe neurodegenerative disorders and things like that that we're seeing really uh, unfold and explode in the United States, we're going to have to lean into a lot more of this N equals one citizen science work to be able to better parse some sort of, of, of way of managing our physiology so that we can stay healthy through all the changes that we're experiencing in our, in our world. So I know I've said a lot. There's a lot I'm dropping in. I'm going to sort of hand it back here to Noah now and see kind of where he wants to go. But that's a snapshot. Genomics and medical hermeneutics are mutually reinforcing approaches that allow me to make sense out of things that are fairly abstracted, such as single nucleotide polymorphisms. Well, there is a lot to unpack there. And that, that might have been the single longest incredible diatribe that I've ever had on, on, on the beyond your wildest scenes podcast, but it was absolutely, you could tell you are, uh, well steeped in literature and writing because it was, it was absolutely magnificent. So what I'd like to do for our audience, if you don't mind, cause you mentioned sure. it and where I, where I, like I said, where, and you mentioned it, we're a lifestyle driven, um, podcast and you meant you brought that up several different ways, nuanced it what do you let's let's break that down into some usable steps that that our audience our listening audience can do lifestyle wise that can make a profound impact in their health in their genomics so on and so forth like you mentioned circadian rhythms and light cycles and you you touched on diet a little bit and social relationships and social genomics uh break some of that down for us what when we're talking about lifestyle, is it is it the emotional aspect that's the most important? Is it the sleep cycle? I'm, I'm, I doubt you could pinpoint one, but uh, what do you see in your patient base as what people can do on it, or the average person can do to really maximize their health and wellness? So that's a great question, and it's it's a question that I'm going to start by answering uh, by saying that there isn't really a single thing that contributes. It's a it's a group of interventions and a group of sort of lifestyle uh, behaviors that, that people have that predispose them to chronic illnesses. And some of it's unavoidable considering that most of our world lives in urban environments. But the things that I, I think are absolutely crucial is, is, is adequate exposure to natural sunlight. Um, there's particular times a day that I recommend. I usually ask people to go out between 9 and 11 a.m., and expose as much much of their skin surface to the sun as possible. And of course, I'm some usually I've seen the genetics for these people, so I know sort of how their their VDR system works and things of that nature. But I have people get in the sun. I have those people also walk around with their shoes off, feet off, hopefully contacting actual soil. And the reason why this is done, it's it's we know that the UV bands of the sun modulate the majority of the systems in our body. Uh, the one that most people are familiar with is the tanning response, but the mid-UV 
helps our body to better synthesize vitamins and minerals. The near UV activates immune complexes and modulates neuro, you know, sort of neuroimmune connections and things of that nature. But sunlight as well, um, having studied very intensely the work of lots of water researchers like Gerald Pollack and others, sunlight is really important and integral at structuring the intercellular matrix and the, the waters that surround the cells in the body. So it's really responsible for structuring the water in the body. And so people that are chronically dehydrated and also chronically underexposed to sunlight will have lots of problems with ubiquination and cell turnover and cell signaling. And they will have a hard time even in in the context of a super healthy, well-designed nutritional and supplemental program of healing themselves just because the systems that are designed to actually govern and move those nutrients around are not functioning and they're not operating and they'll experience a lot of damage to the fatty acid membranes of the cells. So just quite frankly, getting in the soil and in, on the soil barefoot in the sunlight as much as you can five to seven days a week and also making sure that you're well hydrated and drinking the best quality water that you can that alone has the ability to heal lots of different types of conditions. Um, and this was a therapy that really in early naturopathy, it's what we call a nature cure. It's called heliotherapy. It's mostly done in France and a lot of the pioneers of it were from, were French doctors that essentially had clinics for every disease known to man that were essentially working with these folks with nutrition and sunlight. But wasn't sun that, is. Excuse me. Wasn't that uh, primarily to cure like, tuberculosis? You know, fifty, hundred years ago, isn't that what they used? That that was definitely one of them. That the the TB clinics were um, one of the major things. But people were in those clinics from everything from sort of early rheumatoid arthritis cases, lots of of serious kind of sepsis and and wounds that wouldn't heal, the early diabetics, that pe people that were more exhibiting type 1 diabetics that had been uh, exposed to different types of viral pathogens that were helping to drive that. So they were essentially wellness-oriented clinics around the sun that were in, in particular places in the world where the sun angle was right. But they were treating everything. What gets talked about the most is, is the TB work, but they were treating a lot of different things. Um, and from that work, there there was something called syntonics that was created, which is a lot of people that work on ocular conditions um, early in the you know 19th or sorry early 1900s in the U.S. around 1930. This stuff called syntonics came out, and they realized that you could pass different spectrums of light into the retina of the eye, and you could heal lots of different types of disorders, not only of the hugely physical variety, but the things that were also emotional, spiritual, a lot of sort of mood disorders were responsive to these different um, spectrums of light. And one of my big research areas and where I'm going with my practice is actually to open a, a mitochondrial restoration clinic that uses photobiomodulation, which is essentially using light to modulate the cellular terrain of the body. And it uses between the 660 and 840 nanometer light spectrum, which is the red spectrum, to interface with the cytochrome sites. And it essentially can remove reactive oxygen damage from the system, speed wound healing, and essentially helps to signal the reparative um, cycles of the body for different types of outcomes. But light is instrumental. So it's free. Decent water, even if you have to buy a filter, is is virtually free, and those are interventions that, in my opinion, can 
turn around lots of major problems. Um, and, and that's combining it with also, so when your photo period is starting to retain balance where you're exposing yourself to sun in the morning, you also want to make sure that in the evening time you're controlling your exposure to those blue light spectrums. And there's various ways of doing that. The research that I've looked at suggests that the blue blocker glasses are not as effective as we believe they are. Even if a speck of blue light gets around the sides of them, it's going to downregulate melatonin production. Um, so there's a guy, if your listeners are interested and your other practitioners, a guy named Russell Ryder, Dr. Russell Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R, who's at the University of Texas, San Antonio. He's the world's leading expert on melatonin. And he he suggests not only that we manage and completely eliminate exposure to blue light, especially in the wintertime after around 530 when the sun is completely down. It's a little less important in the summer because there's more light availability. But he talks about managing that, and he also talks about segueing into another biohacker lifestyle intervention of, of sleeping more than than what's recommended. Most of the research that I've seen suggests that we're really able to optimize hormonal expression, cell repair, um, and natural immunity by sleeping around nine to nine and a half hours a night. And that's even more than most people are recommending. Some, some, in some cases, 10. The human body on average was designed to experience a 10, 14 photo period, 10 hours of light, 14 hours of darkness at some points in the year. We say on average we're kind of experiencing more in the neighborhood of 12 to 13 hours of darkness. But there's reasons for all of that. And and photobiology as well and our, our sort of chronobiological controls of the body are not just coming from the light in the environment, but they're also coming from our food choices. And this moves into a third recommendation. So we've got light, well-hydrated light exposure, then we've got making sure you're sleeping. I would recommend, you know, closer to nine hours for most people, especially if they've got any chronic health problems within a really um, well-designed sort of bedtime and wake cycle. So really making sure that you're really consistent with when you go to bed and when you wake up. And then moving into to kind of, you know, the, the third area of light, which, or sorry, the third area that I want to look at, which is seasonality of your food. So... When we talk about diet, I didn't talk a lot about it. I've thought a lot about diet. I've read hundreds of books on human diet. The reason why the paleo diet has been very successful for most people is that human beings essentially outsource digestion to bacteria a long time ago. And we're one of the only mammals that does not have multiple stomachs and our intestinal tract is not longer as long as many of the other species, especially ruminant species out there. The Perfect Health Diet by the Paul Jaminet and his wife is a very good book to get into this. But when you do that, you know, you have to wait for evolution to catch up on the bacterial side. So most of the modern food that causes health problems is less than 10,000 years old. And it's not, you know, some of it's really bad and the Franken foods are certainly really bad and the processed foods and stuff that has GMOs in it. But really a lot of our sort of food issues come from the fact that the evolution of our digestive tract has not kept pace with our ability to generate new food types through our technological intervention. So when I look at healthy diets, this new idea of the lectin-free diet that Dr. Gundry is promoting Lectins are essentially a common denominator in autoimmune 
provoking foods like nightshades. They're in animal products where the animals are being fed and essentially grain-based systems and they're not on natural diets and you get passed through lectin exposure. A lot of the leaky gut is being triggered by that. And primarily that's because those foods are not great for us in general. They're modified in some certain ways and they're out of season, but they're also partly bad for us because we don't have the digestive tracts to, to, to make up for that. So seasonality comes into play in this sense because when our human ancestors were in a more um, scarce environment where there were boom-bust cycles around nutrient availability, we ate around 250 different types of plants a year. And in eating that variety of plants, we mostly ate foliage and then we ate tubers, which we're now mostly calling resistant starches. That makes lots of sense. All those leafy foliage-based nutrients are basically going to run a lot of the methylation cycle, for instance. The tubers are going to be the prebiotic and food sources for your digestive tract. And those are the things that we're most sort of cleanly wired for. The other thing is that there are chemicals. Lectins are essentially poisons that plants generate to keep mammals and other large animals from eating them because plants are stationary. And they have lots of cascade effects, but they really are mostly found in the skins and the seeds of, of plants in the environment. And there's a lot of reasons why, for instance, eating fruit out of season has problems. One, the lectins are more poisonous at that time um, for people. And secondarily, there's information encoded in fruits, for instance, and the seasonal sort of things that are in our environment that also work with our circadian biology outside of just simply light. And a lot of those govern adiponectin and a lot of these sort of fat storage hormones like leptin and things of that nature. And that's information that's coming from food. So I guess kind of to, to break it down to a more simple level, a lot of management of, or the management of the epigenome really gets into really being um, mil militant if, and rigorous with the types of information that we allow into our body system. Light is information food is information, water is information, because we want to make sure that the the information coming into the body can be taken and communicated properly for the outcomes that we're looking for, which is really the manufacture and the restoration and, and maintenance of a body system that's healthy, moving through time, that doesn't experience degeneration, um, that's unnecessary and is premature and things of that nature. But I look at light and nutrients really is information. So when you think about your food and eating out of season, you're essentially telling the body, especially if you're eating fruit out of season, that winter is coming on and it's going to invoke lots of fat storage and lots of modulation and sort of negative transformation of the insulin system and things like that. So really what I like to tell people is get in the sun when you can as much as possible, especially during the spring and summer months when it's more available yoke your carbohydrate intake to light and dark cycles. More carbohydrates should be in your diet when you have an opportunity to experience more uh, contact with light, making sure that you're well hydrated and that your water is free of, of the, the major contaminants. And then really just making sure that you're eating as your ancestors would. And paleo diets are, there. there's lots of them. I, I used to use about 20 different variations of paleo clients. Now I pretty much start people on kind of a lectin-free protocol because I found that that's really the common denominator with most of the, the exclusion diets that people are on, and it can get most people 
most of the way in terms of healing some of the inflammatory cycles driven by food. But really, this stuff isn't complicated in the sense that we don't need to understand high-level genetic science. We just need to understand really the governing principles, which is what I get back to. So my clients, you know, a lot of my work is what are the is teasing out through their particular health histories, what the primary infectious agents are, what were the significant emotional traumas, and then what are the ways in which they're not epigenetically taking control of what they can control as people. So when they start to get in the light and they start to drink water and making sure that they're hydrated and they start eating seasonally and within a particular rubric of, of foods, they tend to heal fairly significantly just from those things. Um, and we're not even, you know, I'm, I don't have much time today to get into mitochondria and all the other layers of that. But <laughs> there's, there's, there's lots of things going on. But again, the light and the water and the, the electrical systems of the body are all governing lots of that. Um, yeah. Ryan, let me so. ask you a few, few simple questions on that. Sure. Or when we, when, when we're talking about water, I mean, I, I, I'm familiar with Pollock's work and structured water and easy water, but you know, for the for someone at home, I have a whole, full house water filter. Is it a good idea to put some apple cider vinegar in your water or lemon or salt? Is there any suggestions you give with basic water um, if you can't get that that structured water or you're, or you're not in the sun as much as you need to be? Is there a way to kind of structure water simply? Uh, there's, you know, water, is, it's, it's tricky. Most of the ways that you can structure it outside of the sun involve electrolysis. Okay. Um, but what I have people do is I make sure that individuals always add about a quarter teaspoon of unrefined sea salt per liter of water because that allows the cells and the intra and the extracellular matrix to actually hold on to that water instead of increasing water intake. And then that person finds themselves having to urinate, you know, five and 10 times more than they used to before they drank enough water. So the salt and the minerals in that, and the electrolytes do help the body to actually hydrate over time. There are certain types of things that I found removing from water through filtration um, can help with hydration. So most of the um, municipal water systems in the United States have removed chlorine as the kind of major water water treatment chemical, and they've replaced it with chloramine, which has lots of ammonia in it, and it doesn't off-gas. You can't leave it out. So I, I, I make sure to let people uh, know that they want to make sure they're getting chloramine out of their water. They want to make sure that that's not there. You know, if you can afford to remove fluoride as well, there are certain types of chemicals, especially those hollow group chemicals like fluoride, that removing those and then remineralizing with things that the body actually wants in abundance can kind of help. Whether that lends itself to structuring, that's a different question. There are people, and it depends on your level of woo, I've actually done it. I've... I've had people who can't afford to do any more complex water filtration. Just get a jug, you know, a glass, one-gallon jug of water, fill it with unrefined sea salt at the ratio that I was talking about and put it out in the sunlight on the ground for four or five hours. That that can essentially help to structure it to some degree. Um, there's people that argue that's not the case. Then there are people who do that that say it needs to be in certain types of colored containers. I've just found that it's good enough to just put it in the sun with salt on the ground and that tends to help structure it. There are other machines out there, for instance, like the Kangen machine, which is what I have, which essentially turns water into antioxidants. 
by creating, you know, by, by separating the hydroxyl ions out and adding an additional one. But that's not necessarily something your readers have to do um, to get benefits. Really just drinking a specific amount of water consistently with that unrefined salt and filtering it as best as you can afford is, is really a good strategy. I like most people to at least get two liters a day. Um, no matter what the weight is, I found that that's kind of a minimum effective dose of water. Um, and as far as a water filter that's affordable, that's very high quality, I like the Aquasana filters. They're a company out of Dallas. They're very affordable on both the, the sink level and the whole house level, and they're pretty good. And their their replacement costs are pretty low. But but water and sunlight it can do a lot that, that the greatest sort of abstract and interventions can't do. I mean, you can design really elegant supplement programming, but it still can't do what water and sunlight can do for your body, especially at the cell level. So that's why I really emphasize it a lot. And, um, and, and for the multiplicity of effects. Cool. Cool. Now, now you mentioned electin free diet and you mentioned Dr. Gundry, uh, my partner, Dr. Wanda Lee McPhee just interviewed uh dr gundry and i've we've read his books and we where it's a, it's that's another interesting topic for us so by the time your interview comes out that'll already be um that'll that interview will already been released so people will have a good hold on what you know a more advanced idea of what you're talking about when we talk about lectin free diet so that's that's a one great... one thing i'll just say quickly about that diet um i modified those food lists for genetic types because I don't think that uh, it works for all genetic types. It works for some better than others. Um, so there are certain mutations that, that I would be cautious with some of the food groups there. Um, I'm totally on board with, with some of the elements of it in terms of protein restriction. Most of my clients eat uh, very protein-restricted diets. I agree with Walter Longo and other people that you know, 0.36 grams of protein per pound of body weight is probably plenty and more than enough, and I'm really looking to control IGF-1 secretion with people, so I don't like to have people eating too much protein. And protein as well is something that people really don't talk too much about around methylation, but if you eat lots of animal protein and you don't methylate very well, that alone can shut down your methylation. So I'm really cautious about having too much uh, amino acid content in diets, at least early on until the biochemistry is more stable. And sometimes you need to restrict protein. There are certain cases where I've had to put people on really well-designed vegan diets for four to six weeks to correct some of the genetic signaling. And then I bring back in the animal proteins. Um, Lectin-free diets, to give credit where credit's due, Dr. Gundry did not create those diets. That is the work of the guy that wrote Eat Right for Your Blood Type, the book from the 90s. Yep, yep, yep. His father actually did all of that research in the 50s and 60s where he made the mistake was saying that if you're this type of blood type, you can handle this food, this lectin-containing food. And if you're this type, you need to pull this out. Well, we're finding out that really no one can handle them very well. Um, and if you look at what, one of the interesting things as a final point – cultures and when you mentioned culture as being one of the things i study cultures that have been able to tolerate more grains and lectins have these very complex rituals around preparing them whether it's the preparation of south american you know cultures where they're they're removing the anti-nutrients of beans and then cooking them a certain way and then doing a final sort of transformation so it's not as if we haven't done them but there's a lot of interesting food cultural uh, intersections that have occurred through cultures that tolerate grains better genetically 
and they are essentially creating uh, methods for removing anti-nutrients from plant materials that allowed them to tolerate those things in the absence of the bacterial uh, colonies that are needed to break them down more efficiently. So that's a final piece. But yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot yeah. there. <laughs> there. There is. There is. Um, all right. So I got – we. I have definitely not respected your time. I have two simple questions for you to finish off. Uh, day in the life of Ryan Frizinger from waking to bedtime. And two, how can our audience get in touch with you? Okay. Day in the life. So generally speaking, I'm trying to practice what I preach, getting out into the sun, uh, having some structured water. I practice meditation in the morning, and I also do uh, transcranial direct stimulation work or direct uh, current stimulation work because I have issues around neurotransmitters that respond better through that kind of work. Then I'm, um, I try to have a client load of really just two to three individuals in a week. That's what I've found that I've, I can handle in giving those people my, my full consideration and really doing justice to their particular files. So I usually do consults on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, some days I'll do two. Most of the times I do one. And if, if there's more serious things, I'll do more. Um, the rest of the time, I, I'm kind of, for better or worse, a information junkie. So I'm typically reading 70 to 8 hours a week um, if I can. I mean, I literally would read every moment of my day if I could, but sometimes I can't. So I've kind of um, basically become a hermit that lives in a personal library and reads most of the day. So that's usually from about 11 to 5 I'm reading. And then in the evenings I may watch some Netflix, catch some shows, and go out and do things with family. And then I try to be in bed these days by around 10 or 10.30 um, because in my personal, I, I had a severe mold exposure that nearly killed me, which really got me into this work, something for another conversation. But I have to really respect kind of the epigenetics surrounding my life. So I have to go to bed at certain times. And I basically am up around 6 and I'm in bed around 10 or 10.30 and I try to be religious with that. I eat mostly the sort of lectin-free paleo these days. And, um, that's kind of it, but I'm mostly into reading and researching. That's, that's what I do. I was a former division one basketball player in a former life, and I don't really resemble much of an athlete anymore, but I've sort of sacrificed that to do research. And that's kind of what I do. And I do research, um, not only on the genetics and functional med things that we've talked about, but I read lots of philosophy and I'm also a big, gardener and plant researcher. So I do lots of research on plant consciousness and ethnobotanical research and things of that nature, shamanism. Uh, so, but that, I would just say that my days wake up, fuel, get out in the sun, meditate, and then read. And that's kind of it. Occasionally I'll get a break and, and go catch a movie or something, but that's, that's what it looks like. Getting in contact with me, my website is cosmic animal with a K Feel free to look me up there. There's a, a contact email, which is info at cosmicanimal.com. I'd be happy for people to reach out if there's anything that they're dealing with health-wise. The majority of the clients that I work with, by percentage, I would say is 80% people with complex multifactorial chronic illnesses. And then I have a handful of professional athletes, mostly basketball players, and then just people who are more on the Dave Asprey side of things that really want to continue to optimize and kind of stretch and 
sort of squeeze out the the last percentage of performance from their genetics. I have those people, but I tend to work with very complex illnesses. Um, but feel free to look me up there. I'm not much of a blogger. I unfortunately do not appear on many podcasts, but that's starting to change a little bit. But I'm totally available to have a conversation. But the best method is to just send me an email reach out to me and if we need to talk briefly about a, a case or what's going on with that person they can they can arrange uh, to consult with me that way as of now I'm a one man operation so if I don't get back to you in you know a day or so I will get back to you it just may be a little slower depending on how many people have have contacted me in a given week so there we go thank you so much uh, Ryan I really appreciate it and I look forward to our Next conversation, 2.0. But my name is Dr. Noah DeCoyer, your co-host, and you are listening to the Beyond Your Wildest Genes podcast. If you like what you've heard today, please share this with your friends and family and encourage them to subscribe on iTunes. Thank you. And as my oldest son Hayden says, be awesome and never unawesome. Hey, guys, and I'm back. Our June supplement of the month is BYWG's Turmeric Boost. Turmeric has been in the news for its surprising effectiveness to manage inflammatory issues and arthritic pain. However, not all turmeric supplementation is the same. Turmeric Boost contains BCM95, which is a patented form of whole turmeric that helps to address the absorption issues by providing a trademarked formula with 700 to 900% better absorption in human clinical trials. In addition, it doesn't require black pepper to be absorbed, but can be sensitive to some patients. We added medium chain triglyceride, MCT oil, to BYWG Nutrition's Turmeric Boost to encourage better absorption. Once again, no fillers, no wheat, no gluten, no dairy, just value, quality, and effectiveness. For the entire month of June, if you use the code DEFLAME10, that's lowercase D-E-F-L-A-M-E-10, you will receive 10% off this incredible anti-inflammatory aid. You can pick it up at our website at www.beyondwildestgenes.com or if you're local at our brick and mortar store. The June 2020 book of the month is Sacred Cow, Why Well-Raised Meat is Good for You and Good for the Planet by Diana Rogers and Rob Wolf. This is the first book of the month that hasn't officially been released yet, but Rob has been a great supporter of BYWG and we are such huge fans of all his work, we decided to support his pre-release purchase. The book is officially released July 14th. The pre-order purchase code will be in the show notes and in the weekly emails. Our product of the month for June is Lifebook, an incredible life-altering program that all three of us have matriculated through. Lifebook is about you, created by you. It's a one-of-a-kind lifestyle design system that guides you towards your personal vision of success in 12 dimensions of life. These 12 areas are health, fitness, intellectual, character, emotional, spiritual, love relationship, parenting, social, career, financial, quality of life, and life vision. So comprehensive, so empowering. Check it out via the links and the materials we send out during this entire month. And as always, be awesome and never unawesome.